I ask you to consider what you hear tonight and go out of here with one purpose, not to remember the points I made, but that you ought to apply yourselves diligently to your marriages, your children, and your brethren, and if your children, to your parents, that we might have righteous relationships. This is what the, the Old Testament closes with in Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. A people prepared for the Lord are a people that have their relationships based in righteousness. Amen. And that's what I want for this church. And we ought to do it for the Lord's sake. Right. Because of his warnings and because of what Jesus Christ did for us, I started the service tonight with Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, that says he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, right. and that he might purify unto himself a people zealous of good works. Amen. And one of those good works, the, work, the good work that John the Baptist laid upon the nation of Israel, was righteous relationships for the coming of Christ. Let us love our spouses, train our children and love our children, and love one another, and may our children honor and fear their parents and obey them as the Bible teaches us, Amen. and to do it more diligently than we've done it before, and to make more efforts this week. I showed you from Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 15, the way of transgressors is hard, Amen. and so I as your friend and an ambassador from Jesus Christ am warning you, if you cover your sins... You will not prosper, and your way will be hard. But if you will confess and forsake them, the Lord will have mercy. Amen. I have warned you from the Lord. I do not want to see us grieved in here in our families. And we want to make every effort that we can to be holy and righteous in our homes, where the Lord sees. May the Lord preserve us. I showed you that the Word of God is the answer because it has all the knowledge that we need to have perfect relationships. Amen. God chose the offices, and God chose the persons that are in those offices. Submission is necessary for these relationships to work. Even in a church. Do you know what it says in Ephesians 5.22? Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Amen. We all need to submit ourselves to one another so that each other is more important than ourselves. Right. Authority works when those under authority will submit to that authority. All you women, the marriage is dependent upon you submitting. We cannot force your hearts to submit. You are to do it out of your fear of the Lord your God. And if you will submit and make your husband your Lord and your husband and the leader and support him and not answer again and not make suggestions all the time and close your mouth and not talk all the time, but support him. He can be a husband and a leader and a father in the home. But if you are always trying to help him, you will destroy him because you will crush his soul. That is not the way it works. Submission is necessary for all authority relationships to exist. Your husband will be the leader that you want him to be if you will support him and encourage him. But if you are always trying to help him, you will break him down because it breaks his spirit. I would love to put you in a position of management 
where every all the employees are wanting to give you their two cents all the time and see how it affected you women. It would irritate you to death to have somebody always wanting to yap and tell you and remind you of things. If your husband forgets something, the world's not coming to an end. There's a God in heaven. Nothing's going to come to an end. Let him forget. Let the power get turned off. Young or old, all you young couples, all you young girls, when you get married, he may not be very astute financially. Let the power get... What's, what's the big deal about the power getting turned off? We'll be thankful for it, won't we? Let it get turned off. He'll learn. He doesn't need all your help. When he asks for your help, give it to him, but don't always be pushing yourself upon him. Let him be the leader that God made him to be. It's an office that God created. And when I look in the word of God, the role of a woman is to submit. Let the man take his rightful position. All men submit, so you, you children, you, which you need to submit to both of your parents, don't feel that where you're being picked on or that you're being isolated. Men submit. Your man gets up every day and goes off to work and submits to someone that he can see all the deficiencies in the way that they, they run their business. But he still submits. Is every truck loaded just the way you want it to be? Is hardly any truck ever loaded the way just the way you wanted it to be? It's true of all of us. Women should not feel isolated when I make this statement that submission is necessary for, these, for a relationship like marriage to work. Make sure you're, devi- you're defining submission the way the Bible defines it. Don't define it based on 20th century ideas of submission. Uh, define it by how the Bible defines submission. And that is to obey your husband in everything and to submit to your husband in everything and to call your husband Lord in your heart. Submission is essential. Do you know how God brings us into this world? Total submission. We are little tiny helpless babies. As I mentioned this morning, we have these great, big, intimidating, dominant parents. And the Lord introduces us to submission in the ultimate sense of the word. If the parents are too busy to give us a bottle right now and it's going to be one hour from now, guess when you eat? One hour from now. And you learn that right from the womb. Authority. And women, please, help your husbands Be the leaders that they can and will be if you'll submit to them. Now you husbands and fathers and mothers, authority is supposed to exercise itself to maintain itself. Once a relationship has been achieved by the consent of those in subjection, then it's the responsibility of those in authority to enforce it and to keep it going. And it's done by a combination of seduction and force. Neither will work by itself. If it's all seduction and just being such a nice guy that the little wife or the children want, you think will want to obey because you're giving them anything they want, that will not work in the long run. It's a combination. And I use the word seduction to mean you win them. Do you know what a husband had to do in the Old Testament? One year to cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. It doesn't say one year to beat his wife which he hath taken to teach her submission. Listen, to go to a stranger, she was already quite submissive. She needed to be cheered up. And so there was a year to do that. Once authority is established, then you're to win it and to keep it. And that's our responsibility as husbands. And they are unpleasant moments for all of us. 
when there is a problem in the wife to sit down with your wife and to look her in the eye and say, our marriage is not the way that God expects it to be. She knows all your imperfections and she better keep her mouth shut about them. When you sit down with your wife and say, our marriage isn't the way that it should be. These things need to change. And even if it's about her submission, that is your proper place and your proper job to remind her that she needs to be back in submission and some of the things she or she is doing is hurting you and harming the marriage and the family. Right. Young men are asked to join the army. They put up great big pretty posters with, with hunks standing there with ammo draped around them, which appeals to the foolish sense of a young man that he wants to go off and be a hero. They ask him, would you like to join us? Would you like to go off to combat? And if the young man lets a three-letter word out of his mouth, yes, they never ask him another thing. This is authority. Do you, do you all understand that? The minute you say yes, it is then their job to maintain that authority. You don't want to get up some morning and get out and go through your, uh, P, your, your physical drill for the morning? They'll help you get out there. They're not going to ask you. They don't care if you're not feeling quite up to it. But that's how authority is maintained. Once the consent of a wife is given in marriage, then it's the husband's job, not like a drill sergeant. For That's not why I use that illustration. I use the illustration to show how that once the consent is granted by those under authority, then it's the responsibility of authority to maintain it. And a husband wins his wife and reminds his wife and exerts his authority to keep her submissive. This is a godly marriage. A husband cannot give up and say, I just can't get my wife or children to obey. It is your duty before God to expect and to receive that obedience and reverence. And if you need help from this church, then bring them before the church because we'll help you. Leadership and rule is not an option. It's a commandment of God. Right. It's, how it, it's what husbands and fathers are supposed to do with wives and children. It's a, if marriage is a two-way street, here's the two-way street. We need the submission of the wife and we need the godly winning and authority of the husband. And so a marriage works in its proper way as God intended it. Faith. Faith is something that you trust the authority around you. Children, trust your parents. Wives, trust your husbands. Satan wants you to say, but if I give all and I obey everything they want me to do, they'll take advantage of me. That is Satan. The Bible doesn't have any words like that. It just says submit and obey. Yes, sometimes if you submit and obey all the time, you'll be taken advantage of. But I want to tell you something. You've got a great big defender in heaven called the Lord God. Amen. And he'll protect you. Right. And he didn't say for you to protect yourself. Because if we all went around afraid of government, afraid of pastors, afraid of fathers and husbands taking advantages of, of us, none of us would submit and we'd be in anarchy. We trust the living God who will take care of us from government forces or from husbands, or from fathers. But Satan also says it takes two to make a happy marriage. Yeah, the ultimate marriage is a, is a two-way street. The ultimate marriage is a two-way street, but from your vantage point, all you can see is this is a one-way road. Every wife should only be seeing what the Lord expects of her, and that's to submit. And every husband has to see both. 
because it's his responsibility to lead, manage, direct, and maintain both in the home. Don't always be thinking about the other side. That's not trusting the Lord, and it's being very selfish. But my husband can't do it without me. Try it sometime. You haven't tried it. Selfishness is the greatest curse to our relationships. I'm going to hurry tonight, obviously. Selfishness is the greatest problem in, in relationships. Most every single problem in relationships can be traced back to selfishness. If I was to ask you, what are the top five things you should be doing in relationships, I'd be able to find the cause, and it's selfishness. We're too interested in ourselves rather than others. And I want to come back to what Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. He already knows we've set up a high standard, and that's how we love ourselves. But that's how we're to love our neighbor. That's how we're to love our spouse. That's how we're to love our parents. That's how we're to love our children. Jesus Christ gave us an example of not being selfish by dying on the cross of Calvary for us. And it's set forth as an example in the Bible of how we should be willing to give of ourselves to others. We're to esteem others more important than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2. The only thing holding you back from happiness in your marriage? Selfishness. It's not your spouse. It's your selfishness. Don't tell me about your spouse being selfish. It's your selfishness. Because an unselfish spouse doesn't recognize the selfishness of their spouse. Because they're looking at what they ought to be doing instead of worrying about what they ought to, the, the spouse ought to be doing. Whenever you hear the words, or whenever you think the words, they're from the devil when he says, but if they would treat me better, I would treat them better. That's a lie. That's a lie from hell. That's a deception in order to keep you from doing your duty. You are to do your duty for the Lord's sake, regardless of what the spouse is doing. Amen. Don't wait for that. Nothing will ever happen. Selfishness says... Look, I found some neat marriage ideas. Now my husband can love me better. No, a godly person says, look, some neat marriage ideas. I can love my spouse better. You know, we're always looking for something that maybe we can leave open on the coffee table that our husband will find so that he'll love me better. It doesn't work. That is pure selfishness. Why don't you show us all by being the most loving wife? Why don't you children show us by being the best parent, but by being the best children, and then we'll see what happens to the husband or the parents in those situations. Don't always be looking at what you can get. Selfishness says, I always do what they ask. But what about your initiative to do it before they ask? Selfishness says, I'll wait until they ask me. Unselfish love is doing it before they ask. Get, because of this, the cure is in the Bible for selfishness. Do you know what it is? Giving is more blessed than receiving. Right. And so relationships are to be based on giving. Everything that we can read about in the Bible is giving in relationships. Even for husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, they're to nourish and cherish their wives. It's giving. Because in giving, they'll get. But the getting isn't even the important thing. It's the giving. It's a commandment. Husbands, love your wives. It's a commandment. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Someone will argue, but if I give all the time, when will I get? Oh, that's the wrong attitude. If you'll give, all, if you'll give like you should, you'll obtain the greatest pleasure because the greatest pleasure comes in giving. And you'll be shocked 
by what results from unselfish giving. If both sides in a relationship, parents, children, brothers in year, husband, wife, if they both wait until the other party does better and before you will treat them better, where are we going? Nowhere. Nowhere. Except there's a problem. We have a default mode in us, so we will go somewhere. We'll go to hell. Amen. We will have fighting and bitterness and devouring and biting among us and in our homes. We must get off this idea of, well, they did this and they do that and they've got this problem. What are you talking about? The Bible addresses you. The Bible addresses me. Give in your relationship and God will bless it. Stop worrying about what you're getting. That is so selfish. It is so unscriptural. And it is so unproductive. Show me where it has ever helped a relationship. Where you're worrying about what the other party is supposed to do to you. We call it the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we hardly ever do it that way, do we? We want to wait until they do it unto us. And then we'll do it unto them. But the Bible says, do unto others, Jesus taught, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's getting started first. Just think if everyone in here was convicted today and wanted to obey the Bible, they believe there's a God in heaven, they believe he's a rewarder, and they appreciate what Jesus Christ did for them, and they all got the conviction that they wanted to put into practice better relationships. We'd be all banging heads everywhere we turned, all trying to be the first ones to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Amen. Right. Sincerity, as a result of this sermon, will be detected very easily. Sincerity is the appreciation of correction. If testiness comes out of your face or your eyes or your body, when you are corrected about a matter like this that has been laid out to you plainly from the Word of God, you have a problem. There should be cheerful submission and excitement about doing what is right. Amen. The difference in the spirit that I'm talking about is very significant and it's very visible. Right. Amen. Excitement about doing what is right and pleasing someone else and being corrected and willing to receive that correction. Isn't the whole book of Proverbs written to that end? A father to his son, a wise man will receive instruction and be wiser and he'll love the one doing the correction. That's Proverbs chapter 9. And the other side of the coin in the book of Proverbs, someone who doesn't like to be corrected and gets testy and huffy and doesn't like the one that's correcting them, they are a four-letter word, fool. They are a fool. And the Bible makes that so plain, the book of Proverbs. The sincerity of your Christianity is how well you take correction how you will respond if you'll take this sermon and you are excited inside about what you can do to improve your relationships from your side. Self-righteousness. That testiness that comes up. The looking away with the eyes. The looking down. The not looking at the person that's correcting them in the face. The testiness, the body language, the objections, the questions, the answering again. Things that men don't get away with, but that women like to do and children like to do. 
unacceptable. And it's proof that you have a problem with self-righteousness because you think you already know it. You think you're already good. You think you're already virtuous. You think you're already noble, but you're not. None of us are. We all need correction. And we should love it because the only way we can ever be better is to be corrected. It is the only way for progress is to make change. Progress can't occur without change, and change means the way you've been doing it is wrong. And if we would just get understand that, we would jump on the change bandwagon and be cheerful about it. Self-righteousness, it's difficulty in saying you are wrong, foolish, and stupid. I want to ask the women, when was the last time you told your husband you were foolish and stupid? And if you haven't done it in a while, since your sex is vulnerable to those things, you have a problem. When was the last time you children have not admitted to your parents that you're foolish and stupid about some matter? The Bible says foolishness is bound in your heart. If you don't think you're foolish, you're wrong. When was the last time you told your parents that you were wrong and you were foolish and you were stupid? It's the sign of an unself-righteous heart. It's the sign of a humble heart. It's the sign of the poor and the contrite spirit that I read from Isaiah 66 this morning. Self-righteousness is the confidence you are quite competent, intelligent, and capable. That's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is enjoying finding or discussing the faults or weaknesses of others. Self-righteousness is presuming to accuse others when you have your own set of sins bigger than theirs. Self-righteousness is always having an opinion about the conduct of others. Self-righteousness is defensiveness and testiness when you're corrected. Self-righteousness is the presumption of making judgments about those in authority. Self-righteousness is how easy it is for you to apply a sermon to anyone else but yourself. Self-righteousness is the thought during a sermon like this that your relationships aren't all that bad. Self-righteousness is the response that I'm comfortable with the things the way they are. All that is self-righteousness. We should always come... What did I read this morning from Isaiah 66? God says there's one man that I will come and deal with in favor, and it's the man that trembleth before my word. It's the man that's poor, and it's the man that has a contrite spirit. We must humble ourselves before the Bible and say, there are things to be corrected in my life. Right. Knowledge is important in these relationships, which means that... Especially fathers, the men in here I want to address. Men, as fathers and husbands, it is your duty to know your wives and your children. It is your duty to explore them and to confront them as they need it. And this is hard work. You ask your wife, what's wrong? I can tell that, you're, you're, that something's bothering you. What's wrong? And she's going to say, we all know, don't we? Nothing. She thinks that is being a good wife. If she was a good wife, the husband wouldn't be asking. But see, a good husband's always going to know because he's going to watch his wife closely enough to know when something's bothering her because that's a good husband. And he's going to be a good father by knowing when something's bothering his children. He's going to be able to tell at the supper table. He's going to be able to tell at the breakfast table. He's going to be able to tell and he's going to be able to ask them, what's bothering you? And when they say nothing... Something's bothering you. What's wrong? 
Not a thing. I'm fine. And so the exchange goes. Now, if the, fa- if the husband of the father quits right there, two things have happened. He hasn't executed his office the way he should have, and he's got a disappointed wife. You say, but the wife said, nothing's wrong, and I'm fine. How can she be disappointed? She got rid of him, didn't she? Oh, no. These creatures that we call our wives want us to come after them. And true love is coming after them. And you know what? God comes after us. How, how long do we go sometimes thinking things are okay, but he keeps coming after us? You keep walking in here and being placed on the anvil, and the pastor picks up his hammer. How many times do you, do you sing a song or do you read something in the Bible and he keeps coming after you? We must do that as men. We must know our wives and our children, and we must explore, we must know them. We must know their weaknesses and their capacities. Remember last Sunday we read Psalm 103, and it says, The Lord pitieth his children. He remembers their frame that they are dust. We must remember the frames of our wives and our children and allow mercy accordingly. Then we must explore and confront because true love explores another person to find out how they're truly doing. You know for many years I've made fun of that word fine because it's an excuse for all of us. But if you love someone, you will go after them to look beyond that word fine and to find out what you can do to truly serve them at the soul level. Brethren, children, and spouses, especially men, it is our duty to to find the problems in our marriages and to get rid of them by the grace of God. Brethren, our relationships are a commandment. They're not an option. This is not an option for a better way to live. This is a commandment for the only way to live. We are not dealing with, if you want to improve your relationships, we are dealing with, thus saith the Lord. We are dealing with, the way of transgressors is hard. And I, I want to see us have families that God will bless. And God is blessing our families. But I want to see him bless them more. Because we all can admit, I will admit, I can do better. The day I get to the place where I say I can't do better, we have a problem, don't we? I have a problem. And you have a problem because I'll be your pastor saying, I've reached it. A brother said to me after the sermon this morning, and I appreciate it very much, how well this fit in with Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul was quite a man, wasn't he? And he said he hadn't attained what should we be saying? We can still do better in our relationships. Amen. The priority of God's word tells us that this is something to be done now. I love the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he said, I delayed not to keep thy commandments, but I made haste. Can we make haste to do this now? Can we go out of here? And I know when we step outside these doors, the enemies will unite against us to defeat us in our desire to have righteous relationships. But we must do it. Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. Revelation 2.5, that's the cure. You don't need a manual. You need three little steps. Remember what your marriage ought to look like or what your family ought to look like. Repent that it's not that way and do the first works. That's just what Jesus told the church of Ephesus on how to please him. And that's just what we ought to do 
in our relationships. What else do you need to hear? Isn't it enough? Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the ministry of John the Baptist, the New Testament. This is what God wants from us. This is God will come and dwell with us. If we have relationships that please Him, what else do you need to hear? There's a priority on this. Delay. Delay from doing something that you could do toward another from this sermon. Delay is to do despite to the Spirit of grace. Because it is by the grace of God that I am preaching this sermon to you and that you are alive with another opportunity to obey it. Amen. Right. I don't like what he said to another church in the book of Revelation because it's frightening. He said, I gave her a space of time. And see, here's another opportunity for us to improve the righteousness in our homes. Amen. Nothing should come before these primary relationships. Nothing. If you have to call in tomorrow and take off work because you want to sit down with your wife and get rid of some problems, then take off tomorrow. You keep putting it off because you have to go to work. You're showing where your heart is, and it's not where God put it. We work to survive so that we can have godly marriages. We don't have marriages in order for us to have our job. God has given us that companionship, and it should be a priority. This is by the grace of God that we're hearing this again. Don't lie to God that you don't have time. Buy back the time for your relationships by quitting something in your life. Don't wait for convenient season. Do you know who said, I'll hear thee again when I have a convenient season? Do you remember that from Felix? Amen. He trembled as Paul preached to him. And he said, that's enough for now. I'll call you again when I have a convenient season. When you wait for a convenient time to get your relationships right, when does the time come? Never. It never comes. And do you know what the Bible tells us about Felix? He left Paul in prison. The Bible says to train children betimes. That's a word we don't use very often anymore. And it means early. It means early in life. It means while there is hope. It means while they are young. And you better get on your marriage relationships the same way. Because bitterness does not stay at the same level. Clean it out. The priority is to do it now. You can do it and God will bless you. God has given you the will to be here today. And God has given you the strength and the power to do all that's required. You can do this. You can be a loving, leading father in your home. You can be a godly, virtuous, submissive wife in your home. And you can be children that obey and honor your parents. There is no temperamental reason why you cannot. There is no historical. Well, I've never done it before. I've never seen it before. My parents didn't live like that. There is no historical limitation. There's no practical limitation. You can do it. You must do it. And the Lord will bless you in the doing of it. When the Bible says, Jesus Christ can give you, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me in Philippians 4.13, there is the strength to do it. And today, all I want you to go home with is the resolve to do it. God has given us, by His divine power, all things that pertain to life and godliness. My last point, compromise on this matter, is only and absolutely rebellion. I don't care what your excuses are. I don't care if you think it's hard. I don't care if your husband or your spouse or your parents or your children aren't looking for any changes. God is looking for changes. 
and any compromise, any covering of sins in your relationships is rebellion. Samuel told Saul to kill Agag and the Amalekites. He preserved the life of Agag and the best of the flocks. And God came and crushed him with the warning, well, not with the warning, with the absolute end of his career. I have chosen a neighbor of yours that's better than you. You are th- I am through with you. And rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft if you compromise. Women, only God's word tells you how to be a wife. Men, only God's word tells you how to be a husband and a father. And children, this word tells you how to obey and reverence your parents. Are there going to be some men that will stand up and be the active leading fathers in their homes, training their children in godliness and righteousness and maintaining not only their outward conduct, but their inner spirit? That it's righteous and holy. Will there be such men that will also sit down with their wives and bring them to points of places of confrontation where we need to change this about our marriage? God has brought us together and we need to change this. And then to make those changes and to follow up on them that they do occur. And women, if you're husband does something like that, or children, if your father sits down and makes some changes in your home, submit, thank him, praise him, hug him, love him. Because there's very few of them left. Did you read Isaiah 3 with me this morning or not? They're very rare in the earth. We know so much. We could glorify God so much. We could commend truth so much. We could love others so much. Any compromise is profane hatred for those relationships that we say we love. May the Lord bless us to have righteous relationships for his honor and glory and to save us from lives that would grieve us. Amen. Amen. Amen.